Welcome to a special interview episode of Broadway Radio. My name is Matt Tamanini. On today's episode, I am in conversation with the king of the underworld, Patrick Page. The longtime Hades Town star recently left the Broadway production after being with it since its very inception, of course, originating the role of Hades off Broadway, going to Edmonton to play it at the first out of town tryout over to London, which he briefly mentions in this interview at the National Theater, and then, of course, to Broadway. But he recently left the show to trade in one throne for another, as he has jumped back into a show that he has loved for most of his life, and a show and role that he did all the way back in college. He is currently leading an acclaimed production of William Shakespeare's King Lear at the Shakespeare Theatre Company in Washington, D.C. This record-breaking production, and wait till you hear whose record it actually broke, has been extended multiple times and will now play through April 16th in the nation's capital. In our conversation, Patrick and I discuss why he continues to return to Shakespeare and why the Bard's work means so much to him, both in his career and his life. He also talks about what skills are needed to continually work in Shakespeare's world as well in musical theater. We also get in a little bit into his role in the upcoming season of Schmigadoon, why he's always cast as the powerful, foreboding rich guy, I think it's the voice, and so much more. We, of course, will have a link in the show notes for how you can purchase tickets to see Patrick Page in King Lear at the Shakespeare Theatre Center through April 16th. But with all of that out of the way, here's my conversation with Patrick Page. Well, Patrick, I have to imagine that after years of playing the king of the underworld to have the ability to play a different type of king has to be uh, an interesting challenge and an interesting opportunity for you. Yes. Well, it's something that I've spent my life preparing to do. Uh, Shakespeare's been my great passion since I was a boy. And uh, King Lear in particular has been a play that has been very important in my life. I wrote my college thesis on King Lear when I was 22 years old, played the part in college. And uh, and have taught courses on the play and uh, uh, come back to the play countless times. And so to be in such a magnificent production is uh, really quite literally a dream come true. Now, you say you played the role in college. I would imagine that your King Lear today is much different than it was that last time or the first time that you did it. How has how has that grown and changed for you over the course of however many years? I won't even begin to uh, to guess how many that was. Uh, about forty years. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know about you, but uh, I don't remember much about same, um, same. <laughs> productions I did in college. So uh, I can't I can't compare them too well. Um, I uh, of course I've learned a great deal, and uh, I wouldn't imagine that they bear much resemblance to one another. The two performances, other than my love for the play. And what is it about this show in particular? Anyone who follows you on social media kind of knows that you are. Uh, you are want to kind of go into a lot of details about Shakespearean productions and little Shakespeare corner talks and stuff. But what is it about Lear that has appealed to you for so long, dating back to your to your teens and 20s? I think Lear is the play that taught me the greatness of Shakespeare. I remember when I was first studying the play, first living inside the play in college and marveling at how each line seemed to 
each word indeed seemed to connect somewhere else in the play, um, not just one time, but multiple times. So words like nature, fool, nothing, the idea of how much we need, the word need, the idea of um, quantification of things. Uh, what, uh, how, <clears throat> Lear says that he needs a hundred nights, and his daughters say that he doesn't need that number of men. And it brings up the question of what do we need? Some people think they need a yacht. Some people think they need a mansion. Some people think they just need a, a roof over their heads. Other people think that they don't necessarily need a roof over their heads. How do we organize ourselves? What do we really need? What is our nature? Um, these are the great big questions, you know, that Shakespeare is wrestling with in King Lear. And, and how do we organize ourselves? We find ourselves in a situation where uh, we... We feel that we need someone to lead. We need someone in charge. But the minute someone's in charge, someone is making decisions that other people may disagree with. And what's our responsibility to the society? Um, if, if we don't quite fit in, Edmund Gloucester's son in this play is, uh, is a bastard child. He's, he's, a, he's the child of an illegitimate uh, relationship and um, and therefore he, he is uh, entitled to no inheritance or none of the inheritance of his father and he decides that this rule that society has put forward is nonsense and that he will use his natural powers his natural intelligence his natural cunning his even his um, his natural uh, uh, fierceness, uh, for lack of a better word, evil—what we might call evil—the the ability, the willingness to use force to harm others. That since this particular culture and society is harmful to him, it is therefore uh, natural that he could be harmful toward it in trying to restore the rightful balance of things. And therefore, it brings up the very question of villainy itself. Um, what is villainy for one person is uh, simply uh, righteousness for another person. And these are great, great big questions about how we live together. And, um, and, and then what is... What are we finally uh, when you when you dig down beneath the role of king and when that's stripped away for Lear, when you dig down beneath the role of father, when that's stripped away for Lear uh, and you keep digging down, what's there at the bottom? Who am I? Lear is asking, who is it can tell me who I am? And that that's the biggest question that we all have to ask. So. It was, it was living in the play when I was in my early twenties, and realizing that it was, it was asking these questions that were, in some ways, unanswerable, um, 
but that that could sustain a life, an entire lifetime of asking such questions. But I knew it was a play I could live with my entire life. It's interesting the way you talk about all these questions being asked, and yet just here at the end you say like, those are questions that really can't be answered either, I assume, for the characters, but the people who are playing the characters and then the people who are watching the characters on stage. What is that one of the things that keeps you as an artist and, and maybe even just a lover of literature and a lover of theater returning to Shakespeare is the fact that, to me at least, the questions that Shakespeare poses can have one way to look at them at one point in your life. And even if it's not that far removed in terms of years, if you change, if your life changes, those questions take on much different meaning and much different resonance depending on where you are in your personal journey. Yes, that's right. And of course, depending on how much courage you have to face whatever answer may present itself to you at the time, because you may not like the answer. The answer may pull (laughs) the rug right right out from under your your sense of yourself uh, or your your entitlement or your privilege or, or many uh, things the questions are are so daunting and and that is um, the the kind of theater that interests me question uh, theater that is written around um, the, the 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 important questions and where the playwright seems to be engaged in the struggle with me rather than the playwright saying, I have some answer which I would like to deliver to you in the form of a moral. And what, what, when you leave this theater, you'll feel good and truly preached to about it, um, uh, which is a kind of theater that I find rather tiresome. Um, rather, uh, the playwright saying, Let's let's think deeply and seriously about how we relate to ourselves, to nature, to God, um, and to each other. Now, a lot of times when we see Shakespeare productions, especially nowadays, we've seen them so many times. Um, they all have like a different perspective, whether that is in terms of their setting or when they are said or some sort of different directorial choice. Tell us a little bit about what this production, uh, directed by Simon Godwin, how it brings Lear into its own world that is unique to this specific production at the Shakespeare Theatre Company. Well, Simon, for those who don't know, is is one of the world's foremost and greatest classical directors. He is an associate artist of the National Theatre in the UK, where he recently directed uh, Much Ado About Nothing, and Romeo and Juliet, which people may have seen on PBS, is Romeo and Juliet played on PBS. It was quite thrilling uh, uh, with Josh Hawley. And um, uh, I'll remember her name in a moment, but extraordinary actress, uh, uh, Jesse Buckley. Um, and, and, uh, and his Anthony and Cleopatra with Ray Fiennes, uh, uh, played in rep with Hadestown actually when we were at the National Theatre oh, wow. on the Olivier stage. So I got to see that a number of times. Uh, he's he's also a regular member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, where his Hamlet uh, was an extraordinary success uh, and uh, traveled here to the Kennedy Center. His time in Athens was an extraordinary success. So this is a world-class talent. And he's looking at the play um 
He's not trying to impose his... He's in the questions with the playwright. He's not pretending to have the answers. And so what he wanted to do, if I may speak for Simon, and of course I may get it wrong, but what it seems to me he wanted to do was place it in as urgent and contemporary a setting as possible so that we would see that these questions are our questions. So this is a 21st century production in modern clothes. It moves like a thriller. Um, it's not a lumbering four-hour King Lear. It's a propulsive, it's under two and a half hours, breakneck King Lear, um, and in which each context, each room that people enter is a room that we recognize. Each uh, outfit that a person wears tells you something about their, their personality and their status. You know, when we see Shakespeare in Elizabethan clothes, it's very difficult for us to know uh, what what each article of clothing means. But we, when we have contemporary clothing and someone's dressed, let's say in the first scene in this play, Gloucester is dressed as a general and he's clearly, you know, uh, some kind of like the chairman of the Joint Chief, Chief of Staffs, played by Craig Wallace. We see him, we recognize him, we know his place in the power structure. Likewise, in the first scene, Kent, who in our production is played by Shireen Bam, in a piece of wonderful cross-gender casting, um, is very much a sort of Condoleezza Rice character. So when she steps forward to challenge the king's foolishness, we have an idea of who that person is stepping forward and challenging this person, as if Condoleezza Rice might have stepped forward and challenged George W. Bush when he was invading Iraq or something like that. So, And, of course, doing all of this in the nation's capital, look, looking out in the audience and knowing in the audience there are Congress people and senators and Supreme Court judges and lobbyists uh, makes it all the more vivid and vital. So it has this extraordinary filmic sound design, set design, costume design that uh, makes it so that we uh, feel that it's a play about about us, um, about our folly, about our violence toward one another, uh, about our social structures. And, um, and that's really, really thrilling for me. I've seen a number of Lear's recently, uh, especially that have traveled over to BAM and so on, and they've tended to be set in remote periods. And I understand that, 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 uh, uh, that take on it because, uh, uh, you 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 raise some difficulties for yourself when you say I want this to be in complete in a completely modern context, but I think those difficulties are also opportunities, and I think Simon has seized them and um, and really performed miracles. You talk about like doing this show in such a supportive theater, not only with an acclaimed director, but also from the technical standpoint and, and all of that, but then also being in the nation's capital where there are obviously, like you said, many powerful people that frequent there in the audience. 
but this is not your first time working um, with this company. You are, I think you might even be a, are you technically an associate artist with the Shakespeare Theater Company? Um, and you've worked with them many, many times over the years. What is it about this company in particular that, you know, as busy as you are doing theater in New York and film and television, that you still, every few years or so, find an opportunity to come back and do a show with the Shakespeare Theater Company in D.C.? Yeah, uh, well, it is an extraordinary company um, founded by Michael Kahn, who for years was the head of the acting program at Juilliard, in addition to being the artistic director here. And so Michael had a very keen eye for good acting and for trained classical actors, because Juilliard was the uh, the, the top classical training program in, in the country in terms of preparing people to do plays by Shakespeare and Shaw and Ibsen and so on. And so uh, there was always an emphasis here on making the Shakespeare excellent. Now that sounds like so bottom line, doesn't it? <laughs> and yet there are, there are many, there are many Shakespeare theaters or theaters that are dedicated to Shakespeare who have, for reasons of their own, various other priorities, priorities that supersede the excellence of the classical work. And, um, and so for me, the fact that uh, the Shakespeare theater was so laser focused on making sure that Shakespeare was excellent. I think people have been so burned by Shakespeare. They, um, they hear about a production, wherever that production is, let us say in New York, and it stars a, one, a, a favorite movie star or a favorite television star or someone that they've heard of. And, uh, and they go to the show and they don't understand what's going on. They can't follow the plot. They don't understand what people are saying. Sometimes they can't, they literally can't hear or understand the words. Um, and they come out blaming the wrong people. They either blame the playwright, um, as Ira Glass famously did a few years ago after seeing a King Lear in New York and said, you know, I, 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 Shakespeare sucks. You know, I, 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 I just come to the conclusion that Shakespeare sucks. So they blame the playwright or they blame themselves if they don't have the the cojones to blame the playwright uh they may blame themselves and say i'm just not smart enough for shakespeare uh uh but they they rarely blame the, the people who are actually at fault which are the um the director and the actors that the director hasn't uh been skilled enough and the actors haven't been skilled enough it takes an enormous amount of training and energy to first of all read the play, understand the play, um, and and then to present it, um, it, it's a skill like singing opera is a skill, and um, and I, for example, I I I have a number of, of favorite singers. Some of my favorite singers off the top of my head are. Bruce Springsteen and Leonard Cohen and Paul Simon and Willie Nelson and Dolly Parton. And I love all of these singers very much. I don't want to hear any of them at the Met singing Rigoletto or Tosca. <laughs> um, they're not trained for that particular 
kind of singing. And we do this a lot where because we know an actor, we think that that actor necessarily should be able to play Hamlet or Macbeth or Romeo. And so people have been burned by Shakespeare time and time and time again. And uh, I, I liken it to if you if you thought you didn't like sushi and all your life you, you said, I don't like it. And someone finally got you to try sushi and you went and for whatever reason, the sushi at the place you went was terrible. It just wasn't good. And anybody who knew good sushi would have told you, you know, you got a bad batch, but you blamed sushi. You said, I don't like sushi. And then you maybe try it another time and you get another bad batch. And by the third time, you're going to say, I don't like sushi. When in fact, if you had a, 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 a good meal uh, uh, prepared by expert chef, um, you, would, you would love it. And, and that's what I find with Shakespeare. I found that with my one-man show, All the Devils Are Here, that I was approached by countless people saying, I, I, I never understood this stuff, but I, I understand it, and now I love it. And that's, that's what we're that's what we're finding with King Lear. They just had for this Lear, they just had their single largest uh, sales day ever. Uh, they wow. topped, which was their single largest sales day ever before, was for the Britney Spears musical <laughs> Once Upon a One More Time. Yeah. Now you understand why that might have the single largest sales day ever. But to have the single largest sales day ever for King Lear is something different. That's people coming and going, I get it. I get what people were talking about. I understand why people think Shakespeare is great. Because I was excited. I was moved. I was thrilled. I was horrified. I felt human. I felt the fullness of the roller coaster ride. And... Uh, and so I'm I'm really pleased about that. And of course, I, I think you know we've now been extended three times because mm -hmm. of the demand for tickets. Yeah, that, it's that's incredible, and that's such a cool, uh, you know, honor to have the the community turn out for this, and people who might not otherwise understand or appreciate Shakespeare making a commitment to come and seeing this show. And then obviously the word of mouth that they are spreading to other people is, is tremendous. I, I find it so interesting that you, you make the connection between Shakespeare and singing. Um, because I think of, you know, you obviously live in multiple worlds as an actor, not only this traditional uh, classic Shakespeare world, but also so many people know you from your work in musical theater. And I wonder we don't see a ton of people doing that. Obviously, there are many that do, but you know, we don't see a lot of people that kind of cross back and forth between those worlds as expertly as you do. Are there skills that translate directly beyond just the being a good actor and knowing how to do that job? But are there specific skills that lend themselves to the worlds of musical theater and Shakespeare? Yes, absolutely. I mean, first of all, the the length of thought in Shakespeare, one of the reasons people don't understand Shakespeare frequently is because the actor will break up a line of thought. A line of thought may be, might go across five lines of verse. So a line of verse is 10 syllables. And the, the full thought may be five lines of 10 syllables each. That thought is an unbroken line of breath. And it takes an enormous amount of breath control to maintain the thought. And if the thought is maintained, 
and from the beginning of the thought to the end of the thought, then the audience can follow it. If it is broken up into a bunch of little pieces, uh, the audience loses the thread of what the character is saying. So there's the, the simple physical thing of the breath control. But there is also the fact that singers are accustomed to the idea that the composer has laid down some ground rules. So if you are, uh, for example, singing Sondheim, you know bloody well that he's done the thinking for you, a great, great deal of the thinking. And if you're singing Sweeney Todd, you take the rests where Sondheim took the rests, you take the uh, the half notes where the half notes are, the whole notes where the whole notes are, and you follow each instruction because he has laid it down consciously. This is also true of Shakespeare. All of the instructions are written right into the verse. Now it takes a great, um, it, it takes a while to learn those instructions, how to make them part of your body so that you are free within it to play. When I go to see Josh Groban play Sweeney Todd, which I know I will love, mm -hmm. it will be different from when I saw George Hearn play Sweeney Todd. The notations will be exactly the same, but each artist is bringing their heart and their soul through it in different ways. And that is the case with Shakespeare. So the fact that a musical performer is much more apt to understand um, the advantage of form as opposed to uh, many modern actors who uh, resist what they think of as the restrictions of a form and say, well, I don't feel like taking a rest there. I don't feel like moving this on. I don't feel like uh, not pause. I want to take a pause here. Well, I'm sorry. There's no pause written into the text there. There's no pause there. Shakespeare didn't write one for them for you, so you don't get one. And that that kind of um, form, I think, is something that musical artists are more comfortable with and can make their own. That's fa that's fascinating to think about from a textual uh, level as the similarities. I, I love that. And almost as much as I love just the idea of you talking about Sweeney Todd with Josh Groban, that you in in that world uh, makes me very excited just to even think about whether it's uh, in the audience or on stage. But um, speaking of some musical things, we are talking just, I think, the day after Apple released the trailer for season two of Schmigadoon and you are joining that cast. I don't know how much, if anything, you are actually allowed to talk about, but... It looks absolutely delightful and unhinged in all the best ways. Uh, is there anything you can share about either what type of character you're playing in season two of the show or any any details at all about what to expect from the Chicago season of the, uh, of the series? Yes, I can. Uh, I, I'm First of all, I can tell you that we have the time of our lives shooting. Oh, I'm sure. And, and, and it is absolutely uh, every bit as fun as the trailer makes it out and 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 a hundred times more so i think people are just going to be wild about it um uh, the people 
you know, get to do things in this uh, that you are have just been dying to see them do, you know. Um, and uh, it's so funny, so clever. My character, uh, the the town uh, they've revealed that it is a different town. They they can't find Schmigadoon this year, so they found another town, another uh, uh, musical town, and that town is Chicago. And in the town of Chicago. There is a man named Octavius Kratt. Octavius Kratt is the most, is the wealthiest and most important man in Chicago and kind of runs things. And um, that's who I play. Any any hints as to what music, type of musical stylings you will be dipping into throughout the season? Uh-huh. Well, it, it's, it's all s- sending up the beloved musicals of the sixties and seventies. Um, and, uh, so there are, you know, cabaret, Sweeney Todd, Annie, Jesus Christ, superstar, Godspell, Pippin, uh, you name it. It's all in there. And each of our characters is there. There are very few characters. I think that, that are just, uh, a reflection of a single character. Even the ones that seem to be really, really based on uh, a single character. For example, you may have seen pictures of Kristen um, and Alan, Kristen Chenoweth and Alan Cumming. Uh, you'll find that they they have little bits of other musicals in them as well. Yeah, they very much look like Sweeney and Mrs. Lovett. So uh, I'll be interested to see who else gets uh, their DNA weaved in through those performances throughout the season. That's the fun of it. And that's the case with my character, too. As the, as the season unfolds, I think you'll you'll recognize um, the various influences that go into Octavius Kratt. Yeah, uh, I, I cannot wait for that. And I mean, between Octavius Kratt, King Lear, uh, King Hades, a lot of a lot of powerful guys in your in your resume here recently. Do you ever feel like you want to play somebody who is, you know, a poor guy down on his luck. Obviously they all have their, uh, their issues, but I mean, these are all powerful individuals. Have you ever just kind of felt like playing the underdog at one point? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I don't get to do that very much. Um, It's the voice, right? Like it's hard to imagine you as a guy who doesn't have power, either literal or figurative. Yes. You know, if you think of a, of an orchestra, each instrument, sort of has their place in the symphony, you know, and the tuba or the oboe, it's always going to be a tuba or an oboe. And a piccolo is always going to be a piccolo. (laughs) A piccolo is is very rarely going to represent the the power in the kingdom. And I I, I do think of um, theater musically in that way. Um, And uh, I'm grateful actually to have uh, a niche. People sometimes ask me if I if I resent being typecast. I don't feel I'm typecast. I feel that there's such a wide range of roles available to someone like me. I'm so grateful for that. Um, uh, and uh, some of them are bad, you know, what we might call bad guys. But I never think of them as bad guys. I I I'm interested in human behavior. I'm interested in why people do the things they do and and the behavior that is uh, that that draws one's curiosity 
uh, I think the most is 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 behavior which uh, we might call you know antisocial or, or bad behavior. Why why are you behaving that way? Why does why does that person do what he does? And so it's it's a very rich vein of uh, of characters that I've been given the opportunity to explore. If someday uh, someone wants to cast me as a, a, a completely hapless individual, <laughs> I, I would I would welcome it. But I, I certainly don't feel any uh, any loss in terms of, of the roles that I'm offered. Yeah. Well, let's let's wrap up the conversation with uh, getting back to to Lear here just uh, just a little bit more. This we've talked about the production. We've talked about the direction. We've talked about the the company. Uh, this is a show that obviously thrives on relationships. It is very much a show about the intricacies and ins and outs and the ups and downs and, and the different types of relationships that people can have amongst each other. Um, this is a a big cast, even though, you know, it, it, we don't necessarily always think that the Shakespeare productions have a, a, as big of cast as they might have originally. This is a fairly sizable group. And all of those relationships that Lear has with everybody else in his life are very important Tell us a little bit about this company and, and working on this production. And if audience members come to see the show in D.C., what they can expect from everybody else in this cast. I think a lot of them will know at least a little bit of what to expect from you, but maybe some of these other people that they don't know uh, by name or reputation. Well, that's that's such a good question, because I think what some people don't know about King Lear is it's such an ensemble piece. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the reasons the play is so notoriously difficult to do well is it really has about a dozen leading parts um and it, it, it's unlike any other play by shakespeare in that way in how the weight of the play is distributed across all of these characters uh, gloucester edmund edgar regan goneril cordelia fool uh, it just goes on and on and on, all of these characters that have to be so served by the actors. And um, we, we're, Simon put together an extraordinary cast. And then through his rehearsal process, he builds a team. So there are so many group exercises that we do, so many things in terms of building the backstories of the characters together so that I know the backstories of Regan, Goneril, Cordelia, and I share that backstory with them. I know Michael Milligan, who plays the Fool and I, we share the backstory of how Fool and Lear met, what their relationship is. So we bring that onto the stage with us as part of the invisible work of the play. Um, the, the Gloucester family, Lear is one of the uh, plays uh, in Shakespeare that most famously has an entire second plot that's only really tangentially tied to the to the Lear plot, which is the whole secondary plot of Gloucester and his two sons and being betrayed by his son Edmund and eventually saved by his son Edgar, who's also cast out into the storm as Lear is cast out into the storm. So we have 
these remarkable, and it's quite a young company. That was the other thing that Simon was keen about, is that this was a play about generational conflict and that he really wanted the daughters and the sons to be young. Quite frequently, you'll see Lear cursing Goneril and uh, uh, asking the gods to make her barren and so that she won't be able to have any children. And you'll see a Goneril in her, in her 40s or 50s. The curse doesn't carry that much weight. That we have our Goneril and Regan and Edgar and Edmund are in their 20s and early 30s so that you, you really feel this generational conflict. And each role is just magnificently cast. Um, we've got some favorite actors from Washington, because I think the Shakespeare Theatre Company, uh, you know, although it, it is an international theater and a national theater, it also is a theater that serves a community here. And there are just extraordinary actors in Washington itself. So Craig Wallace is playing Gloucester. Todd Schofield is playing uh, Oswald, these are just major heavyweight Washington actors. Um, from Chicago, we have Michael Milligan, who I worked with for the last 30 years. He played Romeo for me in a production of Romeo and Juliet uh, uh, in like 1999 or something. Um, and then, you know, these great, great actors uh, from NYU and Yale and Juilliard. Uh, who are trained in this stuff, but also, you know, uh, in, in, in modern mediums, you know, Lily Santiago Hudson is, a, uh, she does, uh, the show La Brea for, uh, NBC mm -hmm. and, uh, Rosa Gilmore is, uh, has her show on another network. And so people see familiar faces from their television, um, and uh, and they don't know necessarily that these are highly skilled classical actors. So I think it's a it's it's really fun for people to come in uh, and actors like Shireen Babb, who's playing Kent, another role that you know has to have a major major actor in it. It's the thing that every one of these actors, it's every one of these roles is a leading role, and uh, it's rare that you get the you know uh, uh, the the heavyweights in all of them. But we're so fortunate. It sounds absolutely incredible. And like you said, you've been extended a number of times. I believe it, it currently through April 16th. Is that the most recent update? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So we will obviously have the information on how people can get tickets to see that. But Patrick, thank you so much for sharing your insight and your knowledge about this. I am fascinated by the process of, of working with Shakespeare and you are one of the best. So I, I cannot tell you how much I have really enjoyed this conversation. And I uh -huh. wish you an incredible uh, rest of your run there in D.C. And then whatever other rich, powerful person with a super deep voice you eventually play next. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> 